Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this final leg of Season 5, I'm reading my way through every single goddamn page in The Revenge of Kang, the final module in the Time Warp Adventure series for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game. And as I do, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on each page. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Revenge of Kang was written by Ray Winninger and was published in 1990. Today we're discussing page 29 of The Revenge of Kang, and we join our heroes, the Misfits, in kind of a weird gray area. Uh, this is chapter 10, Return to the Spire, and they're doing something that the module doesn't exactly envision, just for the purposes of talking about this chapter on the podcast. As you'll recall, the way that all this starts, this pocket dimension business that we've been dealing with, our hero's time ship crashes, they're on their way to the plot, but the author is like, not so fast, we got 68 pages to fill, I'm going to need you to stop off in this boring pocket dimension. Then once our heroes have crashed, they have to try to find their way out of the pocket dimension, and one of the, like, three locations that are here is this spire. So they go to the spire, and they snoop around, they find a bunch of clues, unless the group is weak on the reason stat, in which case they just kind of walk through a mostly empty, boring building, and then on the top floor, they get jumped by the Kokri, who are really the crows are of this pocket dimension, the author's original creation, a bunch of aliens we don't care about who specialize in capturing heroes so that those heroes can then have scenes where they escape cells, go through processing. We, we, when you think about it, we've spent a lot of our time in this adventure series just sort of like getting our mug shots taken, getting fingerprinted, talking to various levels of supervisors, figuring out where we're going to be transported. That, that happens to us a lot as the heroes in this adventure. But sometimes there's the opportunity to just leave, just to just to beat up whoever's trying to take us in and just go on the lam. That is what the Misfits did. They had already scouted the Spire because Dr. Jaw had been able to astrally project in with her psi stimulator device that allows her to project herself into the astral plane. She looked around the place. Then when the team physically went into the Spire, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew where to go, and they were able to get out before the Kokri could apprehend them. So they didn't get captured and sentenced directly to death, like the secret Zoomers. Uh, they didn't get captured and put through a series of trials, like Ford's Furies, as we've been following. The Misfits were never caught. They made it outside the Spire. The Kokri dispersed. And now they're going to do something that this module doesn't really envision you doing unless you've already been captured and escaped, or perhaps made your way successfully through the Kokri trials of player determination. But like, maybe if you made it through that, then maybe you'll go back to the spire and try to look for more clues and perhaps fix the beacon atop of the spire, which is the whole reason that the Kokri were on your asses in the first place. The beacon up there went out, and then when they found you inside, they figured you must be responsible. You went in there and you offended the spirits. So yeah, anyway, the assumption is you will have escaped at this point from the Kokri, and now you're going back into the spire. The misfits were never captured, but they're going back into the spire because they heard at least enough from the Kokri to know that the problem is that the beacon's not on. So I think at this stage, the Misfits being, I think we've established, the smartest players, if not necessarily the smartest characters that we're following, they figure, rather than going out here and getting chased all over the overland map by Kokri, let's just go right back in that building and fix that beacon right now. So that leaves me having to adjudicate some things. One of those things is whether to read the box text on this page. The instruction says, quote, read the text in bold print only if the heroes are fugitives from the Kokri which I think the Misfits are. The the Kokri are looking for the Misfits, even though they actually haven't captured them or sort of like put them under Kokri arrest yet. So if I were the judge here, I would read the following to the Misfits. Quote, Once again, you approach the Spire. 
this time paying special attention to the vast globe that was once the beacon of the Kokri, sitting atop the tower. Posted outside the spire are two Kokri guards. If you jump behind a nearby ridge, you can sneak up to within 20 yards of the guards without being seen. So, you gotta beat up or sneak past the guards here. The guards have a special bonus to their intuition to see through any kind of diversion or deception because they're really on guard. Which, I, I mean, if you're a guard who's good at your job, I presume you to be on guard while you're guarding. But I guess in this case, especially, they're on high alert. These are no crows are. They're hard to fool. But I figure maybe the misfits wait until it's a little bit dark out. Glass cannon can bring down the light level so that the Kokri can't aim. They fought the Kokri once before, so they kind of have a tactic that works. So I figure the misfits beat up the Kokri. It doesn't really matter how they get past them. That's not what we're talking about on this page. What I want to talk about kind of connects to this gray area that we're in. The thing is, the Revenge of Kang is, in a certain sense, less linear than either of the two previous adventures. It's weird because it's not as open-ended as the Weird Weird West. That module had this whole middle overland component where you can kind of go what you want, pursue the little side quests and tasks that you want to. There are random encounters that can spin out into different consequences for the group, but there are still chains of cause and effect that are pretty much straight lines. So you've got a lot of play when you're doing other things, but when you're connected to the main plot, it's pretty sequential. Whereas as we've seen so far, and as we're going to continue to see uh, to a certain extent, the Revenge of Kang is much more like it presents you with things that can happen, but the sequence of events and, and the causal link, why one thing would follow another, is left much more open. And that's why there's all this discussion at the beginning of the chapters about things like, well, if you're coming from here and the Kokri are your best friends, then this happens. But if you were being hunted by the Kokri, then this happens. And you might be coming to this scene for this reason, and then you'd find this. But if you were coming for this reason, you might want to make this roll to notice this thing. And yet it's still pretty clearly laid out. These are the big events that can happen. Whatever their context is, whatever shifting events are around them, this is the scene that happens, or this is the, the big role or the dramatic event that happens. It's not an awful way to put an adventure together, but in many cases, it's riding that line between basically benign illusionism, where the judge is just kind of scrambling around to present things in a way that convinces the players that their choices matter, when in fact, the basic list of things that were going to happen are just the things that are going to happen, skinned in such a way as to make them look like consequences of the player's choices, versus, on the other hand, a narrative just driven by authorial and judge fiat, couched disingenuously in-game mechanics to sort of absolve the judge and the author to sort of deflect the player's objections that the characters aren't really participating in the story. I think those two things are very close, and this module in particular is really weaving back and forth across that line. This page contains a great example of something that I can't decide whether I, I respect it or resent it or both. So here's what happens. The Misfits want to turn this beacon back on. So they beat up the Kokri. They can go inside and check out the machinery on the first level. And if they pass an excellent intensity reason feat roll, which is going to be surprisingly difficult. Once again, the intensity rules are kind of being abused. But let's assume that they make this roll. They see that the reason that the beacon is shorted out is because the power that's supposed to flow to the beacon to keep it going was routed through one of the missing pieces that the party noticed earlier, which turns out to be a warp regulator. It was hooked up in such a way that the power to the beacon was flowing through it. So when you take the warp regulator, the beacon goes out. The good news is you can just reroute the power flow so that you don't need the warp regulator and it goes straight to the beacon and you can get the beacon going again. Here's how that works. Quote, there are four wires running into the space formerly occupied by the warp regulator and four wires running out of the space. Both sets of wires are labeled number one to four. 
Anyone passing the feat roll knows power will be restored to the beacon if electricity can be carried from the proper input wire to the proper output wire. Ask anyone attempting to restore the beacon to make two good intensity reason feat rolls. On a green result on the first roll, the hero realizes that wire number one is not the correct input wire. On a yellow result, the hero realizes that wires number one and four are not correct. And on a red result, the hero realizes that wires numbers one, two, and four are all not the correct wire. On a green result on the second roll, the hero realizes that wire two is not the correct output wire. On a yellow result, the hero realizes that wires two and one are not correct. And on a red result, the hero realizes that wires two, one, and four are all incorrect. Then, from among whichever wires you have not eliminated through process of reason feat roll, you can connect whichever input wire to whichever output wire you want and see what happens. I'm not going to allow time for you to work this puzzle because it's not really a puzzle, as we will see. If you connect input wire number two to output wire number three, that fixes the power flow, the beacon turns back on. However, if you connect input wire number three to output wire number four, then there's a big explosion, everybody in the room takes remarkable damage. It's not specified whether this blows out the machinery or whether it's just a big like energy explosion and then you can just try again. But in any case, that needn't really concern us. What does concern us is the underlying logic of this little puzzle-shaped event. So you make these two good intensity reason feat rolls, right? And the better result you get on the first roll, the more incorrect choices are eliminated for you from the list of input wires you can choose from, and then same thing with the second roll and the output wires. I was curious because knowing as I do that this author doesn't understand the intensity rules, I thought, let me work all this out and figure out what the consequences are of having different reason scores, especially given that a lot of these hookups just don't do anything. Like if you connect the wires in any way other than the one that fixes the beacon and the one that causes a big explosion, then nothing happens. So I got embarrassingly far into writing down all the specifics in a little notepad document before I realized that this work was pointless because there are only two end states here. You connect the correct wires and you fix the beacon or you connect the incorrect wires and you take a bunch of damage. Nothing else you do with any of these other wires matters. So the only question that remains is, what are your odds of picking the one good connection versus the one bad connection? I discovered two things. First of all, if you get red results on both reason rolls, then it only leaves one input wire and one output wire. So it straight up tells you what the correct connection is. So if you get two red results, then you nailed it. You just hook up the correct connection, you're ready to go. On either of the two reason feet rolls, the last incorrect wire that's eliminated from your list of possibilities is the one involved in the bad connection, the one that explodes. So if you roll anything less than a red result for a given side of this connection, the wire that can potentially explode on you remains on your list. Keeping in mind that there's only one connection consisting of one specific input and one specific output that causes a big explosion, if you eliminate either that input wire or that output wire from your list of possibilities, then you can't lose here. You can't because you can't make the exploding connection, right? You can only make the correct connection or connections that don't do anything try again. So what it boils down to is if you get a red result on at least one of these two rolls, then you win. Like you may not know it yet, but you can't make the exploding connection. You can just keep trying different connections that are on your list of possibilities until you get the right one. And there are only going to be a few. And there's no resource cost here. You just mechanically try the different combinations until you hit on the correct one. If you don't get at least one red result, then anything from total failure to make your reason rolls to a yellow result on both reason rolls doesn't matter, leaves you with even odds 
of getting the correct connection versus the connection that explodes. Because both of those are possibilities on your list, they're the only two meaningful possibilities, and you have no information to distinguish between them. So, you have two chances to get a red result on a reason roll. If you do, then you win this quote-unquote puzzle outright, and if you don't, then it's a coin flip. That's what it boils down to. I mean, and that's true even if, like, let's say you don't make any of your reason rolls. You don't even realize there's anything going on here. You don't even know what these wires are for. And you're just like, because you didn't make your reason roll, you're frustrated. You came all the way back to the spire. You went to the trouble of beating up two of these Kokri. They probably did damage to you, not to mention how boring they are. That's the real cost. You know, getting mind zapped by the Kokri hurts in the game, but having to spend minutes of your life engaging these boring-ass fictional creatures, that hurts in real life. So you did all that. You come in here, you fail your reason roll. You don't know what the fuck is going on. So if you just pop open this panel and don't even know what these wires are for and just realize like, oh, hey, you can connect inputs to outputs. Let me just try it. Like I'm here. I broke into the spire already. I already beat up these two Kokri. I can't unbeat them up. I might as well touch some wires to each other while I'm here. Even if that's what you're doing and you have no idea even what's going on, you still have a 50-50 chance of fixing the beacon versus causing an explosion. This is the dumbest thing in this page. I'm not going to pass total judgment on it, so let me just give you some quick pros and cons, and I leave it to the listener to decide. First of all, the pros, the case four. This is a fine example of illusionism. If you don't see the mechanics here, you, you don't see behind the curtain, and so you don't know that the red result is the only one that matters on these two rolls, then from the player perspective, you're making two challenging but not overly difficult reason rolls, recording your results deciding whether you want to spend karma on them to get more information. You've got your list of possibilities, which is getting narrower depending on how good your reason rolls are. Then once you've made all the reason rolls you can make, it's down to the player to decide in character, because the character is standing in front of these wires. I want to fix this beacon. I've narrowed this down to, let's say, four possible ways to connect these wires to each other. And i that's the extent of my ability to reason this out. I'm now guessing. So this is like the classic bomb diffusing scene red wire or blue wire. I just, I don't know. I just have to try. And then the plurality of the time, if I have four results, I'm going to connect the wires and nothing happens. So what now? Do I disconnect and try it again? Or do I figure I've pushed my luck enough? I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm looking for presumably the one correct way to connect these. And I still have three possibilities left. The odds are against me, but they're not that much against me. Should I give it another go? You're really wringing a lot of tension and meaningful feeling decisions out of this because the players don't know that the way this is set up, their decision about whether to spend karma on their rolls, like let's say the player did a yellow result on the first reason feat, and then they get a green result on the second reason feat, but it's almost a yellow and they're deciding, should I spend karma to increase it to a yellow? That feels like an important decision, even though we know looking at the mechanics, none of this matters. Like white, 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 green, green, white, yellow, yellow, green, yellow, yellow. It doesn't, all those are the same. It's still a 50-50 chance. It's going to boil down to a coin flip. But the player doesn't know that. So the player feels like they're making a consequential decision. And likewise, if the character gets one red result, not two, but just one, they have multiple choices here. It still feels tense, even though we know, looking at the rules behind the scenes, at this stage, the player can't fail. If they keep trying possibilities, they're going to hit the right one eventually. There's no way for them to fuck this up as long as they just keep making connections. The only way for them to lose at this point is just to chicken out and decide that, you know, it could explode any time or whatever the negative consequence is here. So let's just accept that the Kokri don't like us and leave this beacon alone rather than continue trying to fix it. So this is like a very elegant, simple, mechanical way to get a very dramatic scene out of very simple and locked down and controlled mechanics. 
And that depends totally upon hiding the actual rules for the situation from the players. If the players can see the rules, the scene is nothing. But if they can't see the rules, then there's drama. So that's the pro side. Here's the con side. First of all, this is not really playing fair with the characters, especially given that they're being put into such life-and-death situations where they have to spend karma to succeed. I mean, even the even the goddamn trip here in the time machine, we probably had player characters spending karma to avoid serious injury. Putting them in this situation where it seems like they need to spend karma to prevail because you're tricking them, because they don't realize that this is essentially a coin flip, that does seem to take away not just character agency, but player agency. Because spending karma is a player decision. This isn't like a situation where, because the character doesn't know something, a situation is challenging. This is a situation where the decision to spend karma, which is a player decision, is being manipulated because the player is being more or less tricked. I mean, the judge isn't saying anything false, but the clear implication of this setup is that the degree of success on these two roles matters, and it really doesn't, except to the extent that you get at least one red result. Speaking of which, this challenge also doesn't do a good job of respecting character ability. It's entirely possible that you've got characters who are real smart scientist types, who have engineering or electronic skills. But here's the thing, because you need a red result to have any impact on the outcome here at all, I actually checked. Without spending karma, this situation is more likely than not to result in a 50-50 guess, even for a character that has an effective class 1000 reason. That's cosmic level. So like, beyond shift X, Y, and Z, beyond unearthly reason, which by the way is twice as smart as Reed Richards, if you're a cosmic being, you still probably are just going to have to guess which of these wires to connect. Just because of the way that the rules work, it's hard to get a red result. So very likely, if you're dealing with characters who are not on the cosmic scale of intelligence, the only way they're going to get their red result is by spending karma, and they just don't have any way to know which karma expenditure and how much karma are going to even affect what happens here. So overall, I'm coming down on this being the dumbest thing on the page, honestly, because it rubs me the wrong way. Like, I don't feel good doing this to a player. I'm engineering a situation that's going to feel like a big, you know, red wire, blue wire, red wire, blue wire kind of thing. And I'm inviting them to like spend karma on it, sit around with the rest of the group talking about possible consequences. I'm tricking them into thinking there's a scene here. There's really not. We could just flip a coin and be done. But on the other hand, if you successfully trick the players into thinking there's a scene and so they have a scene, was it a trick? I, I don't know. But the fact that this scene is is very likely to be, you know, all, all foam and no root beer, even if you have the intellect of a Reed Richards or a Doctor Doom, to me, that puts it over the top. That is like, if I don't have the opportunity to see through what's going on here and take effective action, even by choosing to play a character who specializes in this sort of thing, if I'm having this totally taken out of the hands of the characters and their abilities and placed almost wholly in the realm of a con pulled on the players, that's to me, that's a step too far. That's the dumbest thing. But you can draw your own conclusions. I, whatever the case is, I have to respect. Probably a lot of groups would have a fun, tense time with this scene whipped up basically out of nothing. That That's a design feat, I have to admit it. As far as our heroes, the Misfits, uh, they have a 90% chance of not getting a red result here. And in the 90% likelihood that they don't get a red result, they're just going to have to guess which wire to connect to which wire. Given that that's a 50-50, and given that they have a 10% chance to get a red result and therefore definitely get it right, it is narrowly more likely that they will hook up the beacon here than blow themselves up. So that's what I'm running with. I think the outcome of this scene for the purposes of our following the misfits through this story is they fix the beacon and this turns out to accomplish exactly what they intended. Quote, if the heroes do manage to restore the beacon, the Kokri will instantly become friendly regardless of their previous status. 
From this point forward, the tribesmen will cooperate with the heroes in any reasonable manner. So the misfits are doing great. The Kokri are on their side. The beacon is fixed. The spirits, if they exist, are appeased. I mean, I'm not a religious person. I happen to think that this beacon functions because of electricity. But the spirit theory is valid. I'm not trying to be one of those atheists here. If nothing else, this scene proves that we can work together. Misfits and Kokri, godless heathens and true believers, working together to repair infrastructure and save public funds on what would have been our costly trial and execution. With the Kokri on their side, the Misfits can now proceed to the main complex, the other of the two buildings available to search. This is not a complex journey that we're on through this pocket dimension. It's an epic quest through two buildings to uncover the ancient secret of building number three. Uh, we're now going to be on our way to the main complex, probably hoisted up on the shoulders of the Kokri. They're chanting our names. They're throwing crude ticker tape made of animal pelts into the air, and the Misfits proceed in triumph to Chapter 11. Join me next time as our heroes boldly venture into the main complex as heroes of the crows are, and our other heroes enter under other circumstances on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons license, is Take Us to the Nearest Starbase by Astrometrics whose work you can find at soundcloud.com slash astrometricsband.